If you are an expat, you are in the right place because today I've got a special expert just for you that will be sharing some critical tips you need to know for your money. That's coming up in episode 130. Are you tired of the traditional money advice? Me too. Bienvenida. Welcome to the Her Money Matters podcast. Join me each week for down-to-earth money conversations that will leave you with more confidence and inspiration to help you take control of your money. And you will probably learn some Spanish along the way too. Lista? You ready? Empecemos with. Let's get started. Hola, hola. It is seriously so good to have you here. This is Jen Hempill, your host. Today's episode is brought to you by my upcoming book called Her Money Matters, The Missing Truths from Traditional Money Advice. I'll tell you more how to grab your VIP status for the book at the end of this episode. So make sure you listen to the very end. Now, today's show is especially for you if you're an expat or if you're planning to be one, because in today's episode, you're going to learn about Doug Goldstein. He is an expert in this. He is a certified financial planner. And what you're going to learn in my chat with him is the strong women in finance and his family that has influenced what he's doing today. You're going to learn his journey in becoming an expat in Israel and the four financial misinterpretations he sees expats make. You're going to learn the three pieces of advice to take into account when considering living overseas. And he's going to present his case for keeping investments accounts in the U.S. I'm going to share with you a little bit about Doug Goldstein. He is a certified financial planner. He is a host of the Goldstein and Gelt show and an expat. He helps people who live outside of the United States handle their U.S. retirement and investments accounts. Lista? Are you ready? Empecemos esta conversación. Let's start this conversation now. Welcome, Doug, to the Her Money Matters podcast. It is about time that I have you on the show. I am super excited to be here, Jen. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you. And I wanted to start off with, even though I know a little bit about you, I want to dig into how you grew up around money. What is your money story? Where did it all start? What did you learn? What did you see? So it's kind of interesting for me because I actually started my career on Wall Street soon after I got out of college. But interestingly, I was partners at the time with my mother. She was a vice president at a big company. And so I literally learned from her about running the business. She had, before she was 17 years in the business as a financial planner, she had been a teacher. And the thing that really got me going was understanding that the important value added that investment advisors can bring is educating their clients. Because I very early on learned that we can't predict the market. We don't have crystal balls. We, we can teach our clients what's out there and help to guide them, but we just can't tell them what's going to happen in the future. And as a kid, so you said your mom was a teacher, correct? So what did you see as a kid or what money conversations were there or did they exist? Well, we talked about it a lot. Actually, my mother's mother, my grandmother, was one of the first women to be licensed as a stockbroker in America. So we, we definitely had a lot of uh, 
around the dinner table conversations about what's going on in the market from as long as I can remember. Wow, that's history in the Goldstein family. I like that. So (laughs) your mother's mother was one of the first licensed female stockbrokers, correct? Right, right. And in fact, I'll tell you, I'm in this really distorted universe because I understand that people often say that women don't have the same background in money that men have, but that is 180 degrees opposite from my experience because my grandmother was a licensed stockbroker, my mother was an investment advisor, and my wife now is also a licensed investment advisor, and she's the CFO of our company here. So it's often funny when people say, you know, to advisors, I go to these conferences, they say, you know, you all should be focusing on women because they're the ones who really don't, you know, have the same background as men. And I don't think that's true. That is interesting. I like that. And what led you to become a CFP? Just basically the family history with your mother's mother or your grandmother, your mother, or what led you to that? What I really like doing is I like getting to know people. I've, I've always been kind of a people person. And I was looking for a career where I could develop relationships with people that are really meaningful. And I don't really think that the relationships I have with my clients are all about money. It's really all about their lives. And what can I do to help them to make sure that whatever their goals or dreams are, I want to be able to help them achieve them. And and that's really what I focus on, which is why, you know, a lot of times when someone comes into my office for the first time and he says, you know, hey, Doug, how much money can you make me? I always deflect that question because I have no idea. And I don't even know what kind of person this is. I have to sit them down and begin the big conversation about, tell me about yourself and what do you do and what are you looking for and what are your experiences in investing before I can even talk about what investments are out there. Right. That makes sense. All about the education piece and having that holistic approach, getting to know the client, their aspirations, what they want to achieve, their goals and all those things. So I love that you did that. So you were at Wall Street how long? So I actually started my career. I spent a little while in the Twin Towers. And so I feel that uh, um, leaving there was for me a lucky move. Yes, I I worked in the States for a few years. And then my wife and I decided we wanted to raise our family in Israel. And after our first baby was born, we, we moved to Israel. But I continue to this day, 20, almost 23, 24 years later, to do the exact same thing that I did in the States, which is work with people handling their U.S. brokerage and brokerage accounts, the IRA accounts and investments. Right. So basically what took you to Israel was just a family decision that you wanted to raise your kids. So that's a big change because you became an expat, if you will. So what did you feel prepared being? Yes, you knew about money, but did you feel prepared in dealing with your finances as an expat overseas? Yeah, I'll tell you, one of the things that I think a lot of people get a little afraid about when dealing with their finances and traveling is they just think that once they go to another country, it's going to be radically different. And I only have experience moving to Israel, which is a first world country. So maybe it is radically different if you go to other places, but it's the same thing here. We have we have jobs and we have pension plans and we save and work and budget and all the same principles apply. But in terms of, and I I guess the first thing that I think of is tax implications, those type of things. Mm -hmm. If you're earning U.S., like, for example, if you are working overseas or you live overseas, working overseas, but are employed or, if you will, stateside versus if you're working overseas and you're employed to in that country. That's the first thing that I think of is in terms of finances, is those implications, like tax implications. Where, you know, do you pay both? I mean, 
I'm sure there's different variations depending on the country, depending on that specific situation. So that's the first thing that I think of. Well, yeah, that's a great point. What I always suggest to people is because it is a little more complicated from a tax standpoint, make sure that you work with an accountant who is a cross-border accountant. In most cases, and I can't say statistically, but anecdotally from my experience in working with people, is when people expatriate and they, they move somewhere overseas, if they try to stick with their U.S. accountant, that can lead to trouble a lot of times unless he happens to have a lot of experience with clients overseas. What's better, I think, and what I advise people, at least people in Israel, is there are a lot of accountants and accounting firms, as well as investment advisors and investment advisory firms that are licensed both in the United States and in Israel. Work with them. At least get some advice from them because they're dealing with this every single day. They know what some of the issues are, and they can help to develop solutions for any of the problems that arise. Right. And when you made the move in terms of, granted, you manage your money well. And what did you learn in terms of the transition in, in becoming an expat or living in Israel with the finances, with the money? I think that what I learned was I was also younger then. So it's important to realize that I started a business here. I started a financial planning business. So I was learning a lot of the things that a lot of young people learn, which was the importance of really keeping track of cash flow. Because the biggest problem that people have, at least when they're younger, is may probably at any age, is that they may somehow be able to build wealth, but they're not always building it the right way and they don't have cash flow. And so that was a real issue, a real issue. That was the thing we really had to think about, which led us to be particularly careful about keeping track of our budget and our income and expenses and probably becoming a little more neurotic than most people. But I think as a result of that, we actually became much more successful. Wonderful. And then what would you say with the people that you work with? Because you work with expats in Israel, right? So what are some common misinterpretations that you have seen uh, from working with your clients that you would want to share? So as you're asking the question, I saw where you were going and I said, I'll write one or two things down. And then all of a sudden, like my list is seven things long to mention, (laughs) but I'll mention just a couple. The biggest new thing that an American expatriate probably faces is If you have assets overseas in a brokerage or bank account, not in the United States, in excess of $10,000, you're required by American law to report those assets. You may or may not have to pay tax on it. That's a different question. But you have to simply report the fact that you have control of an account outside of America. And when I say control, it might not even be your own account. If you move overseas and your brother moves overseas with you and he gives you power of attorney on his $60,000 account... All of a sudden, you have to report that on your FBAR. The FBAR stands for the Foreign Bank Account Report. And if you, for example, are the head of a company or the CFO of a company and you have control of money, simply because it's control of a foreign bank account, you have to report that to the United States. And the penalties are severe if you don't do it. So this is a huge surprise. It's not a tax you have to pay. It's a reporting requirement. Interesting. And what else? What other misinterpretations do you see? So some people leave the United States and they also think that they might be leaving the IRS behind. <laughs> That's also a big mistake. The IRS will follow you till the day you die. Um, America and I think one other country in the world, the very tiny country of Eritrea, tax Americans, tax their citizens no matter where they live. They don't have residence-based taxation. 
which would kind of be logical. Like if you lived in the United States, you should pay tax there. Uh, America says no matter where on the planet you live, you've got to file a tax return and pay simply because you carry a U.S. passport. So if you do decide to leave America, don't forget that because uh, there's no such thing as, you know, well, I left that all behind. And these days with the amount of information sharing going on between almost every country, you will never stay under the radar. So you've really got to be very straightforward with paying your taxes. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, the IRS is nothing you want to mess with. All And I guess when in doubt, just file. I mean, you should always file. <laughs> Anyways, and are there any other common misinterpretations? So another one that came to mind was a lot of times in America, when people are in a high tax bracket, they invest in municipal bonds because they, they understand that municipal bonds, the interest that they earn is usually not taxable. And this is a very general statement because sometimes it is taxable. But they feel great. I'm not, I don't have to pay tax on that. Then they move overseas. And because they're living in a new country and it's normal for the new country to tax its own citizens and residents, they may believe that these municipal bonds are not taxable, that the interest they're getting from them is not taxable. And that's a mistake because the, the reason that municipal bonds are not taxable in the United States is actually kind of a constitutional issue between the federal government and the states and why they can't tax each other. But foreign countries don't care about that. And the interest on these bonds is taxable. So that's something really you have to pay attention to. Learn something new. Any other one that you can think of? Another risk that a lot of people have when they go overseas is the currency risk. And depending where you live and the strength of the currency that you're moving into, you might end up with a real big surprise. So, for example, when I talk to people about U.S. dollars who live in the U.S., they don't really understand that there are other currencies in the rest of the world. Maybe they went on vacation once and, you know, it was kind of weird because they had to work with, uh, with euros or some other currency, but they don't really think this way. But all of a sudden, when you actually live in another country with another currency and you have your investments in America, if the dollar weakens, which by the way, it does all the time, then the value of money that you have has gone down in terms of buying power. So in Israel, we use a currency called the shekel. And whereas $1,000 used to buy 4,000 shekels, now it only buys 3,500 shekels. So that means that if you thought you could buy you know, a month's worth of groceries for that money, for your $1,000, now you can't quite make it through the month on that money. So it's a new risk that you have to deal with, which is called currency risk. Yep, that is I living, we lived overseas in Peru, and we definitely had to, that definitely was a... A huge one for us was just the value of the dollar going up and down. And some because of our situation and some aspects, we were able to pay in dollars, which obviously that's what we would always succumb to. And other times we didn't. So it was, but yeah, you really have to know what the, what the value <laughs> of the dollar is because it does go up and down. So and how long were you living there? We were living there for two and a half years. So not too long, not too okay. long. Long enough to get your feet wet, okay. Oh, absolutely. Long enough to travel all throughout Peru, which was really, <laughs> really nice. <laughs> but I'm digressing here. I want to take a moment to share this special message sponsored by my friends at Podcast Movement. Podcasting has become near and dear to my heart. It's a part of who I am. Because of podcasting, I have been able to connect with you in a more meaningful way, and that means the world to me. To evolve and become a better podcaster, though, I attend Podcast Movement. 
It is the world's largest gathering of new and veteran podcasters or anyone looking to start their own podcast right away. This summer on July 24th through the 26th, it will be held in Philadelphia, and I personally will be there along with over 2,000 podcasters from around the world for workshops, panels, parties, and more. It literally has everything you need in one spot with over 100 sessions to choose from and the expo hall to help you answer those tech questions that we all have. This event has allowed me to meet and connect with new podcasting friends, including Jody Flynn, who was not only my roommate, but a fantastic guest on this podcast. Before we jump into today's content, keep your ears peeled for a unique reveal I'll be sharing midway through the show. It's something special just for you. If you're a podcaster, want to be a podcaster, or know a friend who is interested, you can go to podcastmovement.com and register using the code HMM and you'll get a sweet $50 discount. Now let's get back to today's episode. Now, being that you've had this expertise and you work with expats, you're a certified financial planner and you work with expats in Israel, just solely in Israel, because that is your... No, we work with, with anyone who lives outside the United States okay. who wants or has a U.S. investment account. So we have clients all over the world. We have a lot of clients in South America, in the Far East. I, I happen to sit in the Middle East, so this is where I focus, but uh, I, I'm regularly on the phone or on Skype with someone on some far, in, far corner of the world. <laughs> with a different time zone and coordinating yeah. that, which always, always makes it interesting. So for someone who is listening right now, who is considering making the move overseas, what would be your best tips? I know you've kind of shared, you alluded to them already in what we, in our discussion, but what would be some of your best tips or piece of advice of what they need to think about financially? I would start to make sure that you have a good cash supply because any move is expensive and it's always a surprise. And moving overseas, it is reasonable to assume that it will be a bigger surprise. More stuff is going to happen. And if you have to come back to the States for something, all of a sudden, you know, you got to write a check for a few thousand dollars to a travel agent to pay for your, your airfare. And this can be a problem for a lot of people. So whereas a lot of times financial planners talk about having three to six months worth of spending in, a, in an emergency fund, I think when you're living overseas, you should really boost that a little more. To what, for example? Let's say six to nine months, 12 months. And then it depends on, of course, your job and other sources of income. Right. But, you know, if you don't have many, not just a couple of thousands of dollars, but many thousands of dollars easily accessible for an emergency, that, that's a real problem. No, it makes sense. Any other tips? Well, a non-financial tip is that the size of homes is different in Israel than in America. <laughs> this is really important. We figured this out. And when we came over, we had a big lift, you know, we filled up a box, you know, a shipping crate with American furniture, which we liked and we brought from the States. And it turns out that it didn't all fit properly in our house. So I don't think you have to bring over every last thing. There's a great book called the, ja I forget, I'm sort of not getting the title exactly correct, but it's a super New York Times bestseller called something like The Japanese Way of Tidying. And this fantastic book, which I highly recommend, is all about getting rid of stuff that you don't need. So I highly recommend to people read the book and follow everything that the writer says before they make a move overseas. Yeah, I, I being, well, we've only done one overseas move, but definitely because we're, we're a military family, we've 
uh, have many friends who've done the, the moves overseas multiple times. And the housing issue comes up in terms of size, the other issue of dogs or, or pets in terms mm-hmm. of getting them to. And there's a lot of different rules and regulations for all sorts of things. So it's really getting educated on those things. It's, it's a big deal. There's a lot, definitely a lot to think about. Yeah, I'm a very big believer in checklists, so I would do it. First of all, the name of the book is called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. Fantastic book. It has over 12,000 reviews on Amazon. So oh my I wasn't kidding that a lot of people like it. Yeah, worthwhile. Well, I'll have to definitely look at that because just in case we move overseas <laughs> And if again. you can do it. Yeah, if any sort of move. I think, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, you know, having checklists, there's another book called The Checklist Manifesto, which I also highly recommend, uh, by Atul Gawande, who was a, um, he was a, a doctor with the World Health Organization. And anything you do, and I, I'll bring this back to financial planning and managing your finances, anything you do is done better when you have a checklist associated with it. So as you're beginning to meet with your financial planner, you know, one of the things we put up on our website is, you know, questions you should ask a financial planner. It's a checklist. A lot of, a lot of the material I produce, and I'm, I'm guessing you or your listeners produce too, is, is in the form of a checklist because people can work with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the successful people I know tend to be very organized, and, uh, and that's a great way to do it. I am a big fan of checklists. <laughs> you should see my my planner. Anything that I do has a checklist. Um, getting ready, prepared for your interview has a checklist as well. So pretty much, I am a huge fan of checklists. And in terms of um, being a financial planner, uh, because we have you on, what are I know we talked about your money story a little bit. We talked about. Um, your move to Israel, what you do uh, in being in Israel. Uh, we talk about a little bit about expat life, but let's talk about a little bit about financial planning. Cause you mentioned you brought in the checklist in terms of when you go to talk to a financial planner, being prepared, what are some other things? Like if you be, let's say someone were, was thinking to hire you, uh, or come to you, what do you want them prepared with? Or what would you want your ideal client just come in and so that way you can get to working right away? I really like when people actually bring the paperwork with them that shows their statements of what they have. What, uh, what I find a lot of times is people say, oh, I know what I have, I'll just tell you. And they don't realize that my looking at a statement, because I've looked at thousands of probably of statements in my lifetime. I, I get a lot from looking at a statement as opposed to when someone just says, yeah, I own a few stocks and a couple of bonds and a mutual fund, right? I, by looking at the details, I'm much more able to help the client. So I really appreciate when people actually bring their, their most recent monthly statement. That, that's number one. Number two, it helps a lot when people know what their budget is and they really know what it is. What I mean by that is sometimes people say, yeah, Doug, you know, I spend about five, $6,000 a month. Okay, I can live with that. But then, you know, when we talk a little more, I always say, I, I like to ask more questions. Like, oh, so um, does that include vacations? And they go, oh, no, you know, you know, but our vacations are usually, you know, we spend less than uh, $10,000 a year on vacations. So all of a sudden, you know, now the, the, the spending just went up. And, mm-hmm. you know, in the course of the conversation, I'll ask, you know, I'll mention they have kids. And they say, oh, you know, do you help your kids out at all? Oh, yeah, you know, my son, he's, he's, he's a not-for-profit. And he, I mean, I don't mean not-for-profit organization. I mean, he's just 
living on my couch because he hasn't bothered <laughs> to get a job. And he's a fantastic fundraiser. He comes to me and <laughs> raises money by talking to me. But that means I have to help him. And, you know, all of a sudden I, I'm digging and finding out that these people are not spending five to six thousand dollars a month. They're spending ten to eleven thousand dollars a month. And this is this is a huge difference in terms Absolutely. of financial planning. So I like when people do their homework first and they, they look both backwards and forward to get a realistic assessment of what they spend. No, I, I agree because I work with some financial planners here stateside where that's what happens, where they get to talking to a client that says, because that's what, when we think of getting help financially, really people, what we hear about are financial planners, right? And so that's what people I think, and I don't know if you feel the same way, but I feel like people default. They don't know people like myself or it's, it's, it's changing, right? As we, as time progresses, I've seen more and more coaches, accredited financial counselors uh, come on the scene, but that's what is the default is like, okay, I need to, who is a financial expert and financial planners are names that is a term that we know or a certified financial mm -hmm. planner. But then they go and the same thing happens where they go, they are not necessarily prepared because they have some clarity on the budget, but not really like you mentioned, the vacations or the gifts or the sports for their kids or things, uh, <laughs> getting their hair cut, right? The barbershop or, this, or getting a massage if that's what uh, the person does. Those aren't included. It's just like a a budget in the mind, but not a real clear budget on paper. And uh, mm -hmm. so I definitely get those emails. Can you help this person out? They're not really <laughs> ready to work with me at the moment, right? Because they need to have that extra cash, right? They need to, to be able to invest, <laughs> right? You yeah, have I think that, that budget coaches... Budget coaches really add a huge value to people that, that a lot of people just don't understand. The, the, the best way to get rich is actually to save money, and a great way to save money is not to spend so much. And it's difficult. It's not. It's easy to say, and I tell people all the time, but I know that it's difficult for them to do. So I, I'm regularly telling them that if you guys can't get control of this yourselves, you know, get a coach and someone who can really you know work with you until you've got control of your personal finances because there's no point in investing if you're just going to – you know, literally pull the money out of your IRA when you're 40 to because you got to pay off a credit card debt. That is absolutely crazy. Right. And and people do that if they don't have uh, reasonable control of their money. Right. And you have to be able to fix that behavior, if you will. I don't know if that's the right term uh, that I want to use, but you have to be able to know why that's happening. If you're going back to using the credit cards, uh, is it because maybe you just have this impulse to spend? Where does that come from? Uh, and really getting to the, to, uh, to the root of that issue. What is it coming from? Is it, or is it just more of mismanaging in terms of not knowing where the money is going or what is the problem? And that's what people like myself and other financial coaches or as, uh, Doug refer budget coaches. There's different terms out there <laughs> uh, <laughs> for us uh, can help you with. So any other words of advice? Yeah, I think that that people also need to realize that it's okay to try to keep your money in America. I'm a big fan of, of having U.S. brokerage accounts. Maybe it's because that's what I do for people. Mm -hmm. But one of the other concerns that people have is they go, well, now I'm living in another country. I better move my money over. There are a few problems with that. A, maybe it's just not a good idea from an investment standpoint. But B, the, the investment culture is very different overseas. In, even in first world countries like Israel, where this is, you know, we have a very, very advanced economy here and a very successful economy. 
But it doesn't mean that the investment programs all work the same. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you can buy mutual funds when you uh, walk into your local Israeli bank or if you're living in another country. And you know why that is? Because if you're an American and you live in Israel, let's say, or in Spain or France or Peru or you know wherever you go, and you go to your local advisor and buy a mutual fund, the IRS is going to consider that an offshore mutual fund. The official term for that is what's known as a PFIC, a Passive Foreign Investment Corporation, a PFIC. It sounds scary because it is scary because the IRS taxes these things miserably. It's not the mm-hmm. same as buying any mutual fund like you're used to. But, you know, the, the local banker is not going to know that and he'll sell it to you. And all of a sudden, then you're, you're getting yourself wound up in a nightmare of taxation. So keep your American accounts. You can keep your account in America in your 401k, your IRA, your brokerage account, your bank account. You just have to work with an advisor who knows how to do that for you. And I'm one of them and there are plenty of others like me. Perfect. Well, this has been fantastic, Doug. I'm glad we finally got you on here <laughs> uh, to chat with me and those listening. So I really appreciate your time and your expertise today. Yeah, you bet. If anyone has any questions or wants to be in touch or you think just want something even more free, which is which is great for people outside, is we put together a toolkit for opening U.S. brokerage accounts from oh. overseas. Awesome. Well, where oh, is yeah, that? Okay. <laughs> All right. hey, I've got one on my desk. No, no. The, <laughs> the best way to get it is just go to the, my corporate website, uh, which is at www.profile-financial.com forward slash toolkit and they can get the it's for free uh, it's called awesome. toolkit for opening u.s brokerage accounts from overseas perfect i will make sure that that's in the show notes as well thanks all right wow this was fun i really jen this we covered a lot well i hope you enjoyed the chat with doug as much as i enjoyed learning from him i want to do a quick shout out or la mention and it's not to one particular person this week as I am really, really, truly humbled. As you know, I have a book coming out in the next uh, several weeks or month. And I recently put together a book launch team and the support has just been incredible. So for those of you and you know who you are, there were about over 50 people that submitted to become a part of this book launch team. I really want to thank you. It means so much to me. I know I have, I've been saying thank you probably <laughs> multiple times, but it seriously, it just really means the world to me that you took some time and are committing uh, some of your time to support me in getting the word of this book out. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, in today's talk, I hope you really found this interview valuable, especially if you're an expat or if you're thinking that you're going to be living overseas. I know I learned a lot from Doug today, and I want to make sure that you know where to reach him because his expertise is unique. And so you can reach him over at profile-financial.com. And he also has a freebie that is a toolkit that will show you how to open up U.S. brokerage accounts from overseas, meaning if you don't have a U.S. address. So you can get that at profile-financial.com forward slash toolkit. Now I will have these links in the show notes, so no worries there. That is a wrap for today's episode. I wanna let you know that in the next three episodes, it'll just be me solo. And we are gonna be doing some behind the scenes of my book. I'm going to share you some snippets of what's in the book. So get ready because it's going to be so much fun. 
I want to thank Doug for joining us today and sharing his story, sharing his wisdom. You can check out the show notes on where to find Doug in case you didn't write down those links over at jenhemphill.com forward slash 130. And also don't forget that if you love this episode, if you got a lot of wisdom out of it, if you have a friend, maybe you're not an expat, but you have a friend that is and could benefit from this episode, please be sure to share this as that would be such a great compliment to me. Now, at the beginning, I shared with you that do you have an opportunity to be have VIP status, if you will, and be amongst the first to know the moment my book is available. And you can join that early notification list over at jenhemphill.com forward slash book. Now being on the list does have its perks. Besides being the first one to know when the book comes out, I will be giving away some goodies too. Now I'm keeping hush hush on this. And uh, so I know I'm, I'm keeping you uh, just in suspense right now. So that is it for today. Bueno pues, nos hablaremos el próximo jueves. I will talk to you next Thursday. Thanks for joining me.